The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. This past Thursday and Friday, I had the opportunity to take a personal retreat to plan and prepare sermons. So I overnighted at a house up in the hills of Portland due to the generosity of some good friends and also the graciousness of my wife who held the fort so that I could get that time away. I I do try to remind all of you regularly that any grace that you receive through my service here at Grace Family Church was purchased in part by the sacrifices that Sam regularly makes so that I can give myself to the work that goes in beforehand. Sorry, Mari, getting a little bit of feedback. I wonder if, yeah, this is a little hot. Yes, so, honey, I will never tire of honoring you. And I want you to know that God is pleased with the sacrifices that you make. And all of these people are served by those sacrifices. So thank you. Now, I had never visited the house that I had stayed at for that overnight before this particular trip. And my host gave me copious and clear directions, which I followed very carefully. And it's not that the directions themselves were difficult. They were actually very straightforward. What was difficult was the road that I ended up turning on to get to the house. It's a kind of road that you don't want to be on. And if you're on it, you need to know that it's taking you somewhere, you know. So I'm driving on this road and, you know, it's, you know, it, it's mostly pothole and then some, some decorations around that kind of thing, you know. Um, and, you know, even though I knew that I was going somewhere worthwhile, I really did have several moments of just wondering, am I on the right road? Could this possibly take me to where I'm going? And at that moment, a thought hit me. When you know that the Bible is God's word, you can set off into it knowing that the journey will be profitable, even though the road is intimidating, and you've never traveled that particular road before. You know, you can strike out with this confidence, uh, knowing that it's going to lead you to a good destination, because it is God's word. That's the approach we've been taking with this book of Lamentations. I continue to study it. I'm still wrestling with it. There's so much I'm still trying to, to put in place. And I'm far from comfortable with this overwhelming book. But we knew that this road would lead to great blessings because this book is God's gift to us. And I'm discovering so much as I run ahead of you. So I'm grateful for the theological convictions that position us to receive good, uh, receive the good of God's word in this particular book. Now that this series has finally taken shape in my mind, here's how I mean for us to proceed. Do you remember learning about complementary colors in art? Is that too far back? Too far back for some of you. <laughs> All right. But complementary colors like red and green, blue and, and orange, yellow and purple. You see, when you arrange colors on a color wheel, complementary colors are on opposite sides of the wheel. They are as far from one another as possible. But pairing complementary colors creates contrast. When you put them beside each other, both colors appear brighter and grab one's attention. Last week, after we listened to the entire text of Lamentations, I spent some time highlighting a few themes that emerge in it. 
It dawned on me that a really helpful way to work our way through this book would be to pair contrasting themes. By doing so, what I'm hoping is that the tone and the truths in this text will shine brightly as they serve us. So what I'm hoping to do is to cover the text of Lamentation in three sermons, three pairs of themes. But we'll see. There, there are a few things I'm still wrestling with, and admittedly there might be one more sermon, but I haven't quite been able to wrap my head around that yet. So the pair we're going to begin with today is grief and hope. And here's what I want you to see as we consider them. Lamentations articulates the realities of bewildering grief and illuminating hope in the midst of suffering without obliterating, without one, without either, sorry, obliterating the other. Let me say that again. Lamentations articulates the realities of bewildering hope, bewildering grief, sorry, and illuminating hope in the midst of suffering without either obliterating the other. Grief runs through the warp and the woof of the entire book of Lamentations. It's, it's never far away, even when it disappears momentarily. It's always underneath what's being said. We have to face this. We can't ignore this. If we, if we take this book seriously, it insists on this. Its grief must be heard. Yet hope also speaks. And the hope heard in chapter 3 is without a doubt the theological high point of the book. What we cannot afford to do is to turn those famous verses in chapter 3 into a hallmark greeting card with pastel colors. That's what we're going to end up doing if we refuse to take the journey into grief. If we are to faithfully listen to this book, if we are to be served by it, it, it it's, if it is to teach us how to serve those around us who are suffering, we must learn to embrace, as the writer Christopher Wright puts it, both the horror and suffering of evil, which must be fully expressed and remembered, and the abiding faithfulness and goodness of God, which anchors the soul. So let's begin then in a place where we would rather not be, feeling the weight of the grief of this book. So really, just two containers this morning, grief and hope, are two bags we're carrying with us for our journey that we're going to try to fill with understanding and apply uh, to our situations. So please turn or tap your way to Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. We're starting right at the very beginning. We're going to work our way through this first chapter of Lamentations, and then we're going to give some attention to the second half of chapter 2, and then uh, the first half or so of chapter 3. If you'd like a Bible to follow in, just stick your hand up, and somebody will bring one for you. It's going to help you to have your eyes in the Bible as we work our way through this text. Anybody needs one? couple? All right. Along our journey through this book, we're going to transition from grief to hope. I'm very glad that what we did last week was listen to the whole book of Lamentations. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to go to our website, gracefarm.church, and go back and listen to that sermon. In, in preaching, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hover over the text and then I'm going to try to summarize the effect of different sections of the poem and then I want to dive down into particular verses at times. So having a feel for the whole book is going to serve you as we journey. So let's read Lamentations 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. 
She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. How? How come? How, how could this possibly have happened? That, that's the tone that's conveyed by that first word in Lamentations. It's a word that begins chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4. Christopher Wright explains, This is baffled pain, astonished suffering, lament mixed with protest, disbelief, and questions. That's the word on the lips of the poet who functions as a narrator for our journey. As I mentioned last week, he could be the prophet Jeremiah. He certainly will speak with the heart and the language of Jeremiah at points. But he has chosen not to identify himself. Here at the beginning of this book, he speaks as a witness to the heartbreaking demise of the city. So Lamentations begins then with grief observed. But as you'll come to see, the poet is not merely a news reporter. You know, you know how there'll be tragedies and a news reporter will come on the scene and they'll compose themselves and they'll stand with their microphone and they'll report as professionally as they can on the facts of the scene. No, the poet is not going to do that for very long. His role is going to be much more significant than that. The poet, in part, is like a tour guide at a war museum. And we must keep where we are in mind as we walk if we are to understand and not misunderstand this book. Though the book never mentions it specifically, we are being guided through a memorial to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem that took place in 587 B.C. The horrific siege and its aftermath makes sense of the very specific snapshots of suffering and loss that line the walls as we walk. That's why this poem begins with an image of a lonely, desolate city. Jerusalem, which was the cultural and spiritual capital of the kingdom of Judah, the symbol of its strength and wealth, was ripped apart and burned with fire. And many of its inhabitants were deported to Babylon to live humiliated under subjection to their conquerors. As the poet observes and conveys the grief of Jerusalem in these first 11 verses, the first half of chapter 1, that's the first half of the book's opening poem, the point of pain that affects him over and over again is the reversal that has taken place. Jerusalem has gone from glory to devastation. I, I was thinking about it, and there are a ton of you know, riches to rags stories around us. But you know what I thought of? I thought of Buju's deportee. Buju Banton's song, deportee. It's amazing how similar the role reversal is in this text and in that song. Lamentations 1.7 says, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. Remember one time, gone how you used to brag. Benz and Lexus, the way you did have. Clarks and Bali where you got in a bag. Clothes where you wear, still have on name tag. Clothes where you know wear, sorry, still have on name tag. It's just, you know, Bush is tracing the journey of this guy who had it all. In Lamentations 1, 6a, it, it says, For the, From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Verse 9 says, She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. Now you crash up, now you mash up. You never did a plan. Now you're sorry, you never remember the Almighty One in the days of your splendor. So, there is this reversal that is going on. Things change. 
don't know if we're going to be able to stay together this way. Times are good or bad, happy or sad, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know church planting life would be like this. <laughs> but back to our text. These verses are a collage of tragic images. Jerusalem, Zion's daughter, or Lady Zion, as one commentator dubs her, was a princess but has become a slave. Her friends have become her enemies. She has gone into exile and slavery. She finds no resting place. Her pursuers have overtaken her. All of those, that second battery of images are images of the reversal that took place. You'll remember the Exodus, how God took his people out of slavery and took them into a land of rest. And no, it's like, it's the undoing of all of that. They're heading back into slavery and subjection. The poet captures her abandonment and betrayal, mourning, loss, humiliation, shame and violation. Verse 10 is particularly striking. In verse 10, with devastating skill, he portrays the invasion and ransacking of the temple in Jerusalem as the gang rape of Lady Zion. That image once seen is shocking to our sensibilities. Now, I I don't know about you, but I can't deal with stories of rape in the news. It, It affects me. I don't know what to do with myself when the news starts to detail the latest assault on someone. You see, I I, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see that image in my mind's eye. I I don't want to think about the violence and the violation, the pain which doesn't end after the assault. It, It truly, it horrifies me and I don't know how to handle it. But you see, the poet here is not trying to be scandalous or exaggerating the extent of the tragedy. Later in Lamentations, in chapter 5, verse 11, we see that the heartbreaking metaphor reflected the historical reality. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. This is still the reality in civil wars and ethnic conflicts all over the world. It's a daily reality in our nation, even though no war has been declared here. Those of us who can imprison ourselves behind grills and gates in our homes, we do that to protect ourselves. I mean, we can turn off the news, but the horrific realities of this broken world confront us here in God's word. And the poetry is meant to help us to see it and to feel it. Lamentations is not about us, but it is given to serve us. And I think one of the ways that it can serve is to push us to face rather than hide from the reality of suffering around us. And to teach us how to respond to it by lamenting. Pastor and author Mark Deva suggests, we watch the news so that we know how to pray. And Mark Vrograp, another author, pushes us further. We watch the news so that we know how to lament. Our culture can train us in indifference or outrage, but God's word can train us how to see and cry out to him in suffering. Lamentations chapter 1 has another character, apart from the poet that speaks. Lady Zion herself, the personification of the people and city of Jerusalem, speaks. She is the voice of grief expressed. Look in your Bibles at the end of verse 9. 
It's as if in her pain, she can no longer wait any longer to express herself. She interrupts the poet's speech. And her first words are deeply significant. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The first thing we hear this suffering woman do is appeal to God by his covenant name, calling on him to look at her in her affliction. Two more times in this chapter, in verse 11 and in verse 20, she will cry out to God to look, to see her in her suffering. Now, she's not merely asking God to witness her pain. In the language of the Old Testament, this was an appeal to God to show compassion, to see and to act on her behalf. It's particularly striking because as she complains, it's clear that she understands that even though her enemies inflicted suffering on her, ultimately she's suffering at God's hand. In Lamentations 1.14, she says, My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. In verse 18a, she confesses, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. The Lord is in the right, she says. Yet she cries out to him for mercy. Here's what we need to understand. And this is what's going to help us through this whole book of Lamentations. At the heart of the book of Lamentations is the covenant between God and his people. She understands that despite her being under God's wrath, he must still care for her because he has bound himself to her. Her enemies are his enemies. God's commitment to his covenant is the reason she is suffering, and rightly so because of her rebellion. But it is also the only reason she has for hope. Lamentations offers us wisdom for living in this broken world. We don't naturally know how to respond to suffering. As, as children, our response to pain is to cry. But as we grow, especially for boys in particular, we are taught and we train and we absorb the fact that no, we don't cry anymore. Crying is weakness, you know. So, so we think of strength as the ability to take the blows that life is dishing out without saying a word, without shedding a tear. We start to become solution-oriented. What can I do to change this or fix this? Lament is not merely crying. It certainly gives us permission to express our pain and to shed our tears. It challenges both our notion of maturity and emotional health. If Lamentations gives us permission to grieve, the wisdom that it models and encourages right from the outset is crying out to God in prayer. That's what people of faith do in the midst of suffering. Yet, in a sense, it is a learned response, one that we must learn to repeat and sustain. Especially here, or especially when, like here in Lamentations, God does not seem to see or hear or move to end our suffering. There's a commentator named Klaus Westermann who wrote a, a, a very good paper on lamentations. And he affirms the real significance of lament resides in the way of laments, sorry, reside in the way they allow the suffering of the afflicted to find expression. What that means is that to learn to lament is to learn to express our pain by crying out in faith. 
faith battles to hold on to God who has revealed himself in his word and in his saving acts even when he seems far away from our current experience. You see, Lamentations is a very difficult book because it doesn't offer us a quick fix for our suffering. This is not one of those take two scriptures and call me in the morning type things. We, you know, uh, Paul House says this, and he's quoting another uh, commentator in part. Ian Provence states that Lamentations seeks to draw readers into the suffering depicted in the book. He adds, we are further being invited to learn from their experience, to participate in their attempt to relate their experience to the reality of God. The book reminds us in a forceful way of the challenge of suffering to faith and invites us to feel and to ponder its significance. To enter the book's message in this way, one must learn to speak the book's language, not just read it to find a swift way out of pain. It's worthwhile to pay attention to how pain is expressed here in chapter 1 of Lamentations. So Lady Zion, as she speaks from, verse, from the end of verse 11, she cries out to be seen. She cries out to those nearby. It's as if people are passing and seeing her, her pain. And she wants them to see. She's crying out for compassion and for understanding and for solidarity. She also weeps. She allows herself to let the pain out. One of the authors I read pointed out that there's a reason that God gave us tear ducts. Lady Zion confesses sin. Now it's interesting that thinking about the connection between Lamentations and the book of Job. Job speaks to us of innocent suffering and Lamentations very much speaks to us of the suffering of God's people in guilt where, when God's wrath is poured out on them deservingly. Uh, one, one commentator points out that the book operates somewhat like the book of Job but in reverse. It demonstrates that those who suffer because of their own sins may cry out to God as readily as innocent sufferers do. I think this is one of the most important things we need to take from Lamentations. Uh, because in a sense, we live our lives between Lamentations and Job. We live our lives in this space between. We are not the innocent sufferer of Lamentations. You know, uh, Sometimes we suffer in innocence. Uh, sometimes the things we suffer are not our own fault in any sense. Sometimes they are a result of the sins of others and decisions that others have made. Uh, sometimes the things we suffer are consequences of our own actions and our own choices. And we can spend a lot of time so in our suffering sometimes trying to figure out to what extent is this my fault? You know, to, to what extent have I done something to deserve this? Instead of crying out to God. Because whether it's our fault or not, Lamentations teaches us that we can cry out to God. Lady Zion cries out for vindication. I, I think this theme, and you see it in 122 and later on as the book goes on, towards the end of chapter 2 also, this theme is particularly important. Uh, we live in a world where people experience abuse at the hands of others. And one of the things that happens in our hearts when we experience abuse is that we are crying out for vindication. One of the ways we have to learn to serve those around us who have suffered greatly is we need to learn their, to hear their cries for vindication. 
oftentimes those cries are very uncomfortable to hear because like I said last week, we, we kind of circle in our grief. We tell the story over and over again. And sometimes if you haven't suffered in that way, you wonder why is this person telling this story yet again? But sometimes in that, uh, there is a cry for vindication. There's a cry for justice. Lady Zion also protests. In 2.20, you, you see her protest. She doesn't just accept her lot, even in judgment. She continues to appeal to God on the basis of his relationship with her. Paul House says this, and I think it's very helpful. He says, in Lamentations, prayer is speaking with utter frankness with the ruler of all things about the things that concern the worshiper. Such prayer is not, uh, not simple resignation to a higher power. It is a humble yet substantive grappling with the current situation in light of the nature of God. There's a repeated theme I want to highlight here uh, in these verses heading through the end of chapter 1. One theme that comes up again and again is that there is no one to comfort her. What's... One of the things we need to recognize about the book of Lamentations is that it's not going to answer many of the questions that it asks. That's not what it's aiming to do. But it sits within the canon of Scripture. It sits within God's Word as a whole. And if you look over in Isaiah chapter 40, you see the answer that comes eventually to the cry of Lady Jerusalem. Isaiah 40 verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You get to the New Testament and you see Paul at the beginning of 2 Corinthians praising the God of all comfort and speaking of the suffering he went through and how God has comforted him in his suffering. So in Lamentations, you're going to hear what many of us experience in suffering. There is no comfort. You're there and you're going through and you have been crying out to God and it just seems like no one can comfort you. God himself isn't coming near. But the promise of the word of God is that God brings comfort to his people. So we've talked about grief observed and grief expressed by Lady Zion. If you look at this chapter 2, verse 11, you're going to see grief entered. Remember we talked about the poet earlier and how he begins to report on what's going on with Lady Zion? In chapter 2, verse 11, the poet himself now enters the grief. He says, my eyes are spent with weeping. Remember how Lady Zion was weeping earlier in this poem. Now, The narrator, the poet, says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and and babies faint in the streets of the city. In verse 13, he says, What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you to that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? One of the things we see modeled for us here is listening and entering the sufferings of others. Last week I mentioned that as as believers, the scriptures call us to weep with those who weep. But 
do you realize that we don't naturally feel that type of connection with each other? That doesn't just happen off the bat. It's over time as we build relationships, often we then begin to enter other situations with compassion. One of the things we are called to grow in, and I think Lamentations can tutor us in, is learning to listen to the pain of others in such a way that it becomes our pain and begins to affect us and how we function. I know it's much more comfortable for me to stay detached from the pain of others, maybe just to listen silently. And what's fascinating is that the passers-by in the previous chapter, that's exactly what they do. They're not taking this on. They might look and shake their heads, but they're not entering this pain. So here, now the poet shows us how to enter the pain of others. Robin Parry points out that at this point in uh, the poetry, he says, now those calls, that's Lady Zion's calls, have at last found a willing response. But alas, the poet cannot console Jerusalem and cannot serve as a comforter, as the comforter she needs because her shattering has gone beyond such things. It is implied that only God can act as her comforter now. So here's the truth that counterbalances our need to weep with those who weep. Sometimes when we engage with compassion, we want to save the person. We want to step into their situation and tell them that everything is okay, everything will be fine. We want to step in and be that savior and comforter. And here in Lamentations, a grief is portrayed for us that nobody else around you can comfort. Nobody can, take, can bear this with you. Nobody can carry this with you in a, in a certain way. It doesn't mean that coming near means nothing. But coming near is not enough. And here we have the reality that here in Lamentations and often in our own sufferings, only God can bring comfort. So there's value in identifying with each other. We're commanded to weep with those who weep. It makes a difference, but it doesn't solve everything. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, for the sake of the wedding, I'm going to wrap up with one more thing on grief, and then next week we'll cover hope. I wanted to do them together, so we'll figure out how to do that. But you know, let's, let's embrace the sovereignty of God as Lamentations <laughs> calls us to do. So, here's, 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 so, so let me just recap so you're, you're following the progression here. Grief observed. We begin with the poet who looks on and starts to give voice to the pain of Lady Zion. Then Lady Zion herself expresses her, her pain, grief expressed. The poet now enters Lady Zion's pain. Finally, what we're going to see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 18, is the poet again embracing the pain as his own pain. So, very briefly, and I may return here just to cover this next week. As, as you work your way through Lamentations chapter 3 from the beginning, uh, let me read the first couple of verses. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. All of a sudden you have the poet, a male character now, who starts to personify the suffering that has been going on here. He is afflicted. He is besieged just like the city. He is imprisoned. He is hunted. He is humiliated. Now, I, I've become a fan of uh, the Star Wars series that uh, Disney Plus 
has been rolling out. I love the way they're kind of pulling themes and bringing characters and building out their stories. And I love the way that some characters will cross from one series to another. So I, I was watching the book of Boba Fett a few weeks ago, and it's a scene in the desert, and you see the silhouette of a character coming towards the camera, towards the town. And I see the silhouette, and I think to myself, no. There's no way. But the silhouette is distinct. I recognize this character, not because he's ever appeared in this series, but he's in other stories. And as he approaches, I'm like, that cannot be Cad Bane. I don't know why my last name is always used as villains, though. I'm not, I'm not, Batman, it's not right. I need a good character, that's Bane. But Cad Bane is walking into this scene, and I know immediately what that means because I know Cad Bane. Here's what's fascinating. In Lamentations chapter 3, there's a silhouette of Jesus. Jesus is walking into this scene as this man who has seen affliction. Now, obviously, in the original context, this is the poet identifying with Jerusalem. But ultimately, Jesus becomes the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The man who enters the suffering of others and takes it on. So here is his silhouette right here. And if you read through this chapter, you can hear his crying out under God's wrath, which he faced for us. He identified with us in our suffering. And what that means is that as you suffer now, you can know that Jesus continues to identify with you. In Acts 9, when, when Paul is confronted by the risen Christ, Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? That makes no sense if Jesus is sitting pretty at the right hand of God up in heaven and doesn't feel our pains. But it makes perfect sense if he, because we are his body, feels what we feel as we suffer. So that already hope, the, the, the outline of hope is emerging here in Lamentations chapter 3. So we are going to stop at a very strange point, which is not the point we meant to stop, but it's a good stopping point. Look at Lamentations chapter 3, verse Six, verse 17 and 18. After speaking of his suffering, the poet says this, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Those are heavy words. We have reached the bottom now. The way he is speaking now is that hope is gone. When he said, I've forgotten what happiness is, it reminded me of my own experience of depression and talking to other people who have walked through depression. There's a way, it feels like happiness is just, you know, that's some distant memory. I don't even remember what that feels like anymore. I don't feel that anymore. What I feel is the heaviness. But here's what's interesting. The last word in chapter 18 is the Lord, is Yahweh. And that actually is the entrance of hope. Let me read one quote and then wrap this up. And we'll, we'll resume with hope next week. Christopher Wright summarizes the experience of this man in chapter 3. He says, Beaten, broken, imprisoned, mauled, shot, mocked, trampled. Reeling under such a battery of images, the man reaches the point of total despair. The amazing thing about the book of Lamentations is that hope steps in at that point of total despair. One story and we're done. When I was up in the hills, I decided to go outside in the night to do some nighttime photography. I have a nice camera that can capture the stars in, in this wonderful way, but it takes like about four minutes 
for each shot. It's just this long exposure thing. So I'm out there in my sweater because it's cold, and I'm, I, I have my tripod, and I'm focusing the camera up. And as I stepped out, I saw, I saw the, the hill silhouetted because the moon was rising. But while I was there, the moon rose above the hill. But I was paying attention to the camera. So at a point, I turned around in what was pitch darkness because that was a great thing. This house I didn't turn on any outside lights or anything. So it's black. I, I'm, I'm worried that I'm going to trip. I turn around and it looks, light is streaming beside a house that's behind me. I'm like, did somebody turn on an outside light? No, it was the moon rising and so brilliant in how it was shining that you are now able to see things around you. One of the amazing things about biblical hope is that it gives us perspective in the midst of circumstances that have not yet changed. Nothing had changed about my surroundings, but the rising of the moon transformed my perspective on them. That's what we're going to see about the hope that rises here in Lamentations. Our circumstances don't necessarily change, you know, but we see them differently because there is a light reflecting down into our circumstances. Hope itself is not the light, just like the moon itself is not the light. It is looking in a certain direction and reflecting that down into our circumstances. So that's what we're going to find. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.